Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. Hey, welcome back to Politico Tech. Today is Monday, October 16th. I'm Stephen Overly. Nathaniel Fick is the country's first ambassador at large for cyberspace and digital policy. This is a, an attempt by the U.S. government to integrate and elevate our approach to technology diplomacy broadly, uh, recognizing that uh, just as tech is changing every aspect of our lives, it's changing every aspect of our foreign policy. Fick has had the job for just over a year, and it comes with a tricky mandate. On the one hand, he has to set U.S. foreign policy up for the future, mapping out a global position on emerging technologies when, in many cases, the U.S. has yet to figure out its policies at home. And on the other hand, he has to grapple with global conflicts in the here and now that increasingly have technology at the center. I would challenge anyone to name a single regional, uh, bilateral, multilateral, functional issue from climate to arms control uh, today that, that isn't inextricably connected to technology issues. Here's just one recent example. Fick was in Kyoto, Japan, to finalize an agreement with G7 countries on ground rules for artificial intelligence. At that same time, Hamas militants launched an attack on Israel that shocked the world and set off a deadly war that has only continued to escalate. I spoke with Fick about both. I'd like to start off talking about some current events um, that obviously across the Biden administration you're grappling with, and that's this ongoing conflict um, between Israel and Gaza after this Hamas-initiated attack. Can you speak a bit to, you know, your engagements in that region right now and, and what support, if any, you're providing to Israel or to organizations in Gaza? It's obviously been an all-hands-on-deck uh, week across the U.S. government, and the United States, of course, unequivocally condemns uh, these really appalling attacks by Hamas terrorists against Israel, including civilians and civilian communities. Cyber and digital are, as I said, inextricably interwoven into every aspect of what we do, every aspect of conflict today, from uh, misinformation and disinformation online to connectivity and ensuring connectivity for civilians in a conflict zone to uh, the risk of hacks to automated warning systems. You know, one point that I would make is that Tech platforms have the capacity to inform communities. They have the capacity to disseminate accurate information uh, rather than to fuel hate and confusion and violence. It's especially important right now for all actors, from politicians to tech platforms to citizens, to demonstrate some restraint and to act responsibly during what is uh, intrinsically a, a very volatile time. Are you troubled by what you're seeing right now on that front? You know, we've covered here the sort of proliferation of misinformation, but also just, you know, very violent content and images, you know, connected to connected to the conflict. How um, concerned are you with what you've seen? I, I think anyone who as an individual citizen is, is, is trying to learn more in real time or near real, real time online is seeing the incredible proliferation of obviously false content online doctored videos, fake statements. It's not hard right now to, to get online and, and notice that. You asked about the, the dissemination of, of really violent content. I mean, I, I, my, my wife and I have pretty draconian restrictions on our kids already in terms of uh, online exposure. 
but, but, you know, as, as they're trying to learn more uh, about what's happening in the world, we've had to redouble our efforts too, because it, it really is quite troubling. And from the administration's perspective, uh, you know, I wonder if there's anything that you are doing about that or, or you see to be done about that, you know, just a comparatively, an obviously different regulatory regime, but the EU, for instance, has sent letters to, to X and YouTube and, and some of these platforms raising concerns with, you know, with the content that's proliferated in recent days. Is there any sort of similar outreach from yourself or the administration? We are in, in, uh, regular dialogue with the, with the, uh, the tech platforms on these issues of, uh, of kind of uh, responsible behavior at a, at, a, at a volatile time, obviously starting from a position of respect for the First Amendment. Uh, but yes, the, the dialogue's regular and ongoing. The, the other piece of this I, I'm curious to get you to weigh in on, any evidence of, of cyber attacks or interference that have played a role in, in these attacks? That's obviously, you know, a perennial concern. Uh, you know, what are you, what are you seeing in, in this particular conflict? I can't comment on the on the specifics of any kind of ongoing operations. Um, I think that uh, again, back to the cross cutting and, and interwoven nature of technology and this conflict, and presumably uh, any any future conflict, where citizens are relying on automated alert systems to notify them of things like incoming rocket fire. You need to ensure the integrity of those systems, right? Just as, as one example of, uh, of what's really important here. Obviously, uh, you know, I and we have been in touch with our Israeli counterparts. They're fully aware of this, fully committed to it, but it's a, it is a topic of mutual interest. When these events were initially unfolding, I know you were on the other side of the world in, uh, Kyoto, Japan, you know, meeting with G7 leaders, hammering out an AI agreement that, uh, as I understand it, is expected to be finalized here in the coming months. Can you talk a little bit about that agreement in particular? How, how hard was it to find consensus among the, the G7 countries on how to approach AI management? Yeah, I mean, just to take um, half a step back, maybe, and put it in context, when uh, ChatGPT was released uh, just about a year ago, last fall, many people in the world were, were captivated by it, and, and therefore many governments in the world uh, immediately were, were responding to calls to do something. But at that point, there was very little substantive answer about what they should do. We saw some fairly, you know, blunt reactions like ban it or, uh, uh, or, or do nothing. Um, neither of which felt like, uh, the right approach. And so the, the United States approach was to, to work with, uh, the leading AI developers in order to codify uh, a set of voluntary commitments. And the categories are, are essentially safety, you know, ensuring that the models don't return the most dangerous results. Um, security, the ensuring the security of the models themselves, cybersecurity standards, that kind of thing. And trust, basically ensuring that users, that citizens can distinguish between AI-generated content and, and non-AI-generated content. And it was important in our view to start with voluntary commitments because, uh, for two reasons. First, voluntary by its definition doesn't stifle innovation. We do believe that our innovative economy, the power of rights respecting technology development in the United States and our, our like-minded allies and partners ought to be our North Star, that we have competitors in the world who believe in a fundamentally different view of tech and society, 
and so maintaining our innovative advantage is the North Star. So voluntary doesn't constrain innovation. Voluntary also is fast. And uh, we don't have 10 or 12 years to develop, uh, you know, an initial regulatory regime here. So uh, the voluntary commitments are intended to be a bridge to additional action. There's a forthcoming executive order, for instance, but they are a, a substantive contribution to the global governance conversation. And so at the G7, we've been working now for the better part of a year during Japan's presidency to develop a shared position for the world's leading democracies that can really show that the G7 is fit for purpose in the tech age, that the G7 can move at the stage of technology, and that we can arrive at a set, first a set of guiding principles, um, and then second, a more detailed code of conduct for AI developers. And in Kyoto, we did get agreement from the G7 on the guiding principles, which is a, a really meaningful step forward. A few follow-up questions on that. You know, I, I hear your point on voluntary sort of not inhibiting innovation. Um, there are some folks, though, who hear voluntary guidelines and and think that maybe means toothless or unenforceable or, right? You know, there, there's questions about how do you get folks to actually live up to voluntary commitments? So what would be your response to that? I think a, a monitoring uh, approach is going to be important that uh, citizens and governments uh, are going to need to have some assurance that uh, that the companies um, uh, are actually implementing the commitments they've signed up to. The guiding principles make that very clear, that uh, monitoring is going to be an aspect of uh, the governance regime now as it comes together. And what forms that can take in different jurisdictions is a current topic among the G7 and also another fora. Well, that's an interesting point. We had um, a former ambassador to the OECD on the podcast a few weeks ago. She sort of raised this point that it, it is hard to create global standards, have global governance of AI when so many countries, including the U.S., have not necessarily figured out their domestic regimes, you know, for the for this sort of thing. I, I wonder, as you're, you know, finalizing this agreement and these 11 principles, I mean, how much detail are you able to put into it, given that, you know, we, we don't yet have a law from Congress outlining the U.S.'s own approach to regulating AI? It's a, it's a very good point. And I think one of the things that, uh, that diplomats learn uh, very early is that our foreign policy in the world will never be any stronger on a particular topic than our domestic policy. In a democratic society, what we do outside the United States is a reflection of what we're doing inside the United States in almost every case. And that's been driven home to me recently. Uh, Secretary Blinken asked, has asked his uh, senior leaders across the department to spend some time on domestic travel inside the U.S. for just that reason, to kind of invigorate a, a sub-national diplomatic effort to drive home that point that there's a direct through line from our domestic policies to our international policies. I was in Tulsa, Oklahoma a few weeks ago. I'm headed to Indianapolis next week. Precisely for this reason. And look, I think that the United States has not gotten everything right when it comes to technology governance. I was really heartened by the president's op-ed in the Wall Street Journal earlier this year, where he called for federal privacy regulation in some form. He called for platform accountability, some kind of algorithmic transparency, stronger protections for children online. I mean, these, these are sensible you know, common sense steps that we ought to be taking in a society that is increasingly influenced by these pervasive technologies. 
we have a legislative process, uh, you know, a constitutional process that needs to be followed. We in the executive branch can acknowledge it and we can urge it. We'll be right back. The Biden administration is moving forward with a slew of new regulations that put products like semiconductors, electric vehicles, modern healthcare technology, and clean energy at risk. Chemistry is essential to our modern lives, creating products to help foster a more sustainable and competitive future. The Biden administration must change its course and work with manufacturers on science-based policies that protect American innovation. Learn more at chemistrycreates.org. You mentioned a a bit earlier the executive order on AI, which is sort of how the executive branch is is tackling this issue, uh, at least until Congress acts on its own. You know, how how aligned is that executive order with the G7 pact that you're you're just finishing up? I'd say it's robust and it's tightly aligned. The executive order is uh, certainly the longest, densest, most content-rich executive order that I've been involved in in my time in government. It should be uh, released within a matter of weeks and uh, we're in kind of deep multi-stakeholder consultations on it right now across the uh, different agencies of the U.S. government. And it, it has a lot of detail around implementation of some of the ideas that are currently at the level of principle or commitment. And it also, like the executive order on commercial spyware that was released a few months ago, I think it puts the marker down that the United States is is going forward holding itself, this administration, the U.S. government, holding itself to a standard that is a standard that that we believe that we and others will be willing to live by. There's an element of moral authority here. Do as I do, not only as I say. Got it. I was going to ask you why, what, what about it makes it so so long and exhaustive? It sounds like it's uh, designed to be practical, I guess, not just theoretical. It gets quite practical, very concrete, specific, not merely recommendations, but tasks to individual agencies and elements of the U.S. government uh, with timelines attached for things that they must do. And once this executive order is out, which obviously we're, we're all eager to see it, um, how do you think that will change kind of the conversations you're having in these global forum where not just even beyond the G7, where there are kind of efforts to set some sort of global standard on AI? I think it's going to give us a whole host of very concrete things to discuss. And, you know, again, and we we sort of alluded to this earlier, uh, there will be different approaches in different jurisdictions according to different cultural norms, uh, different legal systems, legal traditions. But the code of conduct or the, the, the voluntary commitments, the guiding principles, the code of conduct, the executive order in the aggregate these start to add up to a, a really robust answer to that question from last fall of, okay, we got to do something. What do we do? Given the complexity of the topic, given its global nature, given the stakes involved, it adds up to pretty significant progress in a, in a relatively short period of time. Now, again, we're in the early innings of this. There, there, there's going to be more. There'll be more executive action. There, there may be more legislative action. There'll certainly be much more multilateral action across all different fora from, you know, the G7 to the G20 and the OECD. We haven't even talked about the multi-stakeholder aspect of it, which I think is also essential. It's why I was at the IGF in Kyoto. 
Well, that's um, I, I do want to ask about that. Knowing a bit about your background, you were in industry prior to coming into government, so you sort of speak uh, speak the language of both of these worlds. What is the uh, you know the appropriate role for companies to be playing in in setting the, this regulatory agenda here, and and what are you hearing in those conversations that you have? Yeah, and and let me clarify something definitionally right at the outset. When when I say multi stakeholder, I, I do mean companies, but not only companies. You know, I, I also mean civil society organizations of all kinds, and uh, yeah. the the civil society discussions that I had at the IGF were, and almost always are, among the the best informed, kind of the sharpest and most on the nose, pragmatic discussions that that I have on these topics. With you know, we we have deep reservoirs of expertise on technology topics in these individuals and organizations across the whole tech policy landscape who view their role as watchdogs in a democratic society. And I think that's true. So I think that the reality here is that this is not the 1960s where, you know, the the NASA race to the moon and massive government R&D spending is developing all of these technologies that are then trickling down into the private sector, right? Those days are long gone. It's inverted. So uh, government is now a consumer of uh, and, and affected by tech that's developed by private entities, obviously. So the, the balance of the tech innovation is in the private sector. The balance of the technical talent, the commercial sensibility, the attack surface we care about protecting, it sits in the private sector. And so there is very little of meaningful substance that can be done on these topics in a purely multilateral capacity. So if the governments are going to arrive at sensible positions that actually matter in terms of ensuring a sort of zero leakage approach that, that doesn't simply allow, you know, lots of unintended consequences to unfold, then, uh, we've got to do it hand in hand with the businesses. And so again, I mean, that, that's been baked into the American approach with the voluntary commitments. Uh, and we had a, we had a really, uh, lively, session with the companies in Kyoto, uh, talking about the guiding principles and looking ahead to the code of conduct. And what's next then from, you know, following the, the meeting in Kyoto, either on, on finalizing those AI commitments, but, but really just in general, sort of the administration's global positioning on AI? Yeah, um, I think a, a few things. So uh, m- most of us were students at some point in our, uh, in our lives. And uh, Every student knows that there's nothing like a deadline to focus the mind. I'm sure you as a journalist appreciate that too. Appreciate often, yeah. that, right? So, uh, you know, one of one of the things that we need to figure out is how do we how do we create useful forcing functions uh, uh, in order to drive outcomes on a on a on a pretty rapid timeline. So, uh, looking ahead on the on the uh, G, I'll call it the G7 kind of plus adjacent path. Between now and the end of the year, we have uh, we have a few. We we have the opportunity to issue a leader's statement, uh, getting the leaders of the G7 to, to come together and and say something of substance on the topic of AI governance in the G7. Uh, we're going to use that as a forcing function to drive an outcome. We have the UK AI Safety Summit uh, at Bletchley Park in the first week in November. Um, we'll have a very strong US delegation there. That, too, is a forcing function to get to agreement on things. And then uh, the G7 digital ministers will have another out-of-cycle meeting in early December. We're going to use that and really maximize 
what we can get done with the Japanese chair in the three months remaining uh, of Japanese leadership at the G7. A lot of issues you're working on as the first uh, ambassador at large for tech issues. So, uh, Ambassador Fick, thank you for being on Politico Tech today. I appreciate you having me. That's all for today's Politico Tech. For more tech news, subscribe to our newsletters, Digital Future Daily and Morning Tech. Music in today's episode comes from the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior producer is Annie Reese. Our editors are Steve Heuser, Daniela Cheslow, and Louisa Savage. I'm Stephen Overly. I'll see you here tomorrow.